0: That's heritageradionetwork.org networkorg 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you.
2: Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood, eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare. At its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. (laughs) Uh, I was was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugar cane with chef Sean Brock.
3: It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to
2: find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris.
3: Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks.
2: So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. What's the first
4: original piece of food tech? Find out on this episode of Tech Bites. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month, tuning in to shows like this one, Tech Bites, where every Thursday at 11 a.m. we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. And today, my guest seat is occupied by one of my unindicted co-conspirator co-hosts, Harry Rosenbloom who is the host of Feast Your Ears, which is live on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. And I'm really looking forward to this show. I like to have other Heritage Radio hosts on, um, so it becomes a little bit of a family affair. And this episode, actually, the, the spark of inspiration came from Harry's 100th episode, which was about a month ago, which is an amazing accomplishment, doing 100 shows. Um, and we were talking on the show, he asked a question of what I thought the first piece of technology was. And uh, it was such a great conversation that we had to sort of give it its own space and time. So, Harry, thank you for uh, not only asking me onto your show, but that the gift that keeps on giving, which was that phone call, which now here we are.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for joining me on my 100th episode. And thanks for having me on Tech Bytes. Uh, you know, I'm excited to talk about Talk about tech and old yep. old tech.
4: Ancient tech, Ancient the OG tech, tech yeah. the first tech. But before we get to the old tech, we're going to start off with some new tech, like we always do, uh, talking about apps, apps we love, apps we've just discovered, apps that we hate because they're tracking us and sharing all of our personal information and are hitting delete, delete, delete. Maybe. Standing in today for the part of David Tatishore is Victor Hirsch, who's our engineer today.
1: Hello. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to see you. Good to see you too.
4: Early morning start today.
1: Yeah. Oh, I like mornings.
4: Yeah. yeah. It's, it's nice when it's quiet in the studio. We're actually, for those of you listening, we are the first show of the day on Thursdays, which is nice. So we get the fresh studio.
3: And the dining room is empty. So during my show, which is at 1 o'clock, you're looking out into the dining room at Roberta's, and it's chock full of people. And sometimes, once in a while, I'll get someone really loud at, at the, the table, table right by the window, and you can sometimes hear them on my show.
4: Well, they turn the music on at 11, because that's when the doors open. <laughs> the restaurant is closed. They open the doors at 11. They turn the music on, so that's you know what you can hear in the background there.
1: So pizza for breakfast is only if it's cold pizza from the night before. Is that a thing? Or could you have like fresh pizza for breakfast?
4: I think you can have pizza whenever you want. Okay. Breakfast included, fresh or not fresh. Um, I don't think that you could get a pizza right at 11 from the dining room kitchen. But what you can do is just two doors down from the restaurant is the Roberta's to go outpost where you can get. Fresh hot pizza for breakfast, no problem.
1: Pizza all day, every day.
4: Exactly. Although I'm three years in on my show. This is episode 132. Awesome. um, For those of you listening in the future. So I've had my fill of of pizza (laughs) over the years.
1: Same. Yeah. So,
4: Vitor, do you have an app for us this week?
1: Yeah. um, Linda.com is a really cool website. It started sounding like an ad just now. But uh, basically, I love the website for... Uh, It's a tutorial, workshop, uh, online video thing that you can learn software. Uh, And for what I do, audio, video stuff, it's really cool because they have a bunch of different uh, software that you can learn, editing, mixing, uh, whatever you want. And they have an app, uh, the Lynda app, which is spelled L-Y-N-D-A. And it's pretty cool because you can... Access. Well, you do have you do need to have an account. Um, I was lucky to have one through school uh, through NYU that I think is lasting a bit longer after graduation. So that's cool. But I, I, I'm not sure what the subscription process is, but you you do have to have one. But it's cool. You can access it on your phone. and It's pretty nice.
4: Excellent. We like things that are educational and and that you can take with you. Because we spend a lot of time just kind of sitting around doing nothing sometimes. So it's good to have stuff to be productive and engaged. Harry, do you have an app that you use all the time or that you love?
3: You know, I nothing comes to mind immediately i guess what i would say one of the most useful apps that i have on my phone that i use all the time and it's kind of gonna, it's going to be boring like it's not social media related and it's not you'd tech you'd be surprised it's not savvy. how many
4: efficiency and document scanning and that kind of stuff we have on the show so
3: i have an app that does uh, conversions oh volume okay. conversions and length conversions temperature conversions all that kind of stuff so metric to
4: empirical, Me- that kind of all thing all of
3: that and i i absolutely love it um, and I feel like that is one of the most useful apps. Um, I also would say that the, just the camera app on my phone is also one of the most useful. What's
4: the name of your conversion oh, app?
3: I have to look which one I use. I think it, it's called unit converter,
4: unit converter. And is it free?
3: It is free. Okay. Um, and it has a lot, I mean, you know, so looking through, I mean, it does pressure, force, uh, power, angle, data, fuel, cooking. Um, you know, it has temperature currency time, wow. speed, um, length, area, weight, volume. So it Does really... It have
4: clothing sizes, shoe sizes?
3: You know, I don't know if it has clothing sizes. That's one I had to look up recently. Though, oh, and I don't okay. think I turned to the app for it because I didn't even think about that. Uh, it may um, indeed, but it has, you know, I mean, it, if you look at it, you know, it has it has temperature in units that I don't even know what they are. You know, I don't know what uh, degrees R means. Hmm. I don't you know I don't remember high school physics enough to so remember I, I, what the temperature. I could only probably is.
4: name 3 like Celsius, Fahrenheit, Kelvin.
3: Yeah, those are there and then there's two more. Two more. I don't know what they are. <laughs> so uh, it turns out that 30 degrees Celsius is 545.67 degrees R. R. Whatever that is. I don't know what that is. I'll have to look it up.
4: Roberta's. Yeah,
3: right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's one that I find myself uh, using a lot. Um, I guess another one, I've been trying to learn Japanese. Okay. And I've taken that's a couple of Japanese classes, and there's a there's a great app called LingoDeer. Okay. Uh, that is a language app.
4: D-E-E-R?
3: That, yes. Um,
4: Duolingo is also a language learning app that we've had several shout outs over the, over the years.
3: Cool. So you know, it's one of those ones. Lingo Deer, I think, is specifically Japanese, um, and I—it's one of those things that I try to remember that I have it on my phone, like when I'm, you know, on the train or whatever. Um, but I, you know, often get trapped in the like, oh, what did so and so post on Instagram? And so I just end up looking at that, and then five minutes left in my ride, I'm like, oh, I should have been learning Japanese instead of <laughs> looking at another picture of avocado toast. <laughs>
4: Well, maybe you can have Akiko, who is the host of Japan Eats, um, be a Japanese tutor for you.
3: Yes. I've, I've, luckily, I mean, you know, the, the Japanese Akiko in, included, um, you know, as a people, I feel like are very hospitable. So everyone I know who's Japanese, when I use my tiny bit of Japanese knowledge, they say, oh, your Japanese is really great. I'll, I'd be happy to tutor you. So I feel like I just need to get to Wonderful. start that. Say
4: something in Japanese.
3: Uh, uh, konnichiwa. Tasha wa Dozo yoroshiku onegaishimasu.
4: Excellent. Uh, hello, my name is Harry.
3: And dozo yoroshiku onegaishimasu is the sort of formal greeting that you give someone when you're meeting them for the first time. And it, it my understanding is it loosely translates into, um, you know, I look forward to, you know, working with you and knowing you and sort of being friends Very with nice. you. Very
4: nice. Very formal. Yeah. Wonderful. So... My apps today, I read a great article online in on Wired dot com and it was an article about if you are going to delete Facebook, which many people would are talking about it or hashtagging about it on social media and in life. I don't know how many people will actually delete Facebook. Right. But if you're thinking about deleting Facebook, it was a very good article. It talked about the suite of apps you could turn to to oh. replicate the activities you do on Facebook, ranging from news feeds to connecting with people. And um, One of the ones that I thought was most uh, interesting and also the most useful in a general sort of securing your privacy as much as possible online and securing your accounts. One of the reasons why Facebook just has such a, a, a deep, deep hook into all of our personal data is because many of the apps are built on top of Facebook or using Facebook. So many people will sign into new apps using their Facebook login because they don't want to take the time to create a new email set, you know, a new profile, a new
0: password password
4: and, and all those kinds of things. It's just too cumbersome. And App developers know this, so that's the easy turnkey. And in some instances, it's meant to be helpful, and in some instances, it's very nefarious. So the things, the, the two apps that I thought were most helpful, and they're actually apps that we've talked about before, and we've done a few episodes on online security and personal security and the terms of agreement for apps, um, so we can, it might be nice to check back in on some of those. There are two apps. One is called 1Password. And the other app is called LastPass. And they are basically apps that create, save, and uh, engage your passwords for you. So you don't have to memorize them. So you don't have to have a million pieces of paper everywhere. Um, And it will also help you, you know, generate them in some instances. So you can come up with something that's actually, you know, longer and more complicated than, you know... Sushi one yeah. <laughs> or, you know, Roberta's <laughs> pizza exclamation point. Right. <laughs> Tech bites. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so one password and last pass. The article was on Wired. It's apps to replace Facebook. It was really a good one. Um, if you're thinking about deleting or you have deleted and you want to pick up, you know, some new apps to replace all those things. It's a great article to check out. So on to the show. Again, as I said at the at the top. This show comes out of a conversation that Harry and I had on his hundredth episode of Feast Your Ears, back on March seventh, and he asked the question of what I thought the the first, you know, piece of food tech was, and what the first piece of technology was, and we had a very short, but exciting conversation. I said fire, um, because cooking, you know, with heat with fire um, was probably the greatest, you know, hurdle forward in terms of cooking. Although I don't know that fire was actually an invention. Uh, Maybe it's actually just the skill of harnessing fire and heat to cook with. Harry responded with the knife as the original, original piece of food tech, which is interesting to consider. And it's also interesting to consider when we think about technology today, we think about, you know, Wi-Fi connected refrigerators and, you know, reservation apps and, you know, social media and all those kinds of things. But, you know, what technology is and what is perceived as new technology is very subjective and very much a consideration of what your contemporary world is like. So, you know, we always focus on new tech, But I thought it would be really interesting to take a pause and focus on the old original tech and then have a discussion also about at what point does new tech become so utilized by the world and become so commonplace that it evolves out of being new tech and just becomes simply a part of the way we live and the tools of our life. So Harry's answer of the original... Most ancient, most oldest, OG food tech is being the knife. I think is a good argument.
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that uh, obviously there's a lot of things, and there's no, you know, people like there to be a black and a white and a, you know, a, a yes and no answer and for it to be very binary, um, you know, fire, obviously super important. I mean, on that show, I mentioned Richard Wrangham's book, Catching Fire, um, how cooking made us human, which really makes the case that having cooked food is what allowed early man's brain to get bigger and allowed us access to all these nutrients that you can't get if you just are chewing on raw meat and roots and, you know, nuts and stuff, um, so that I think is really valid, but the knife I think comes into play, um, you know, because you have this sort of across every culture and throughout really throughout modern, you know, modern human history, the need to cut things up in order to make them small enough to put in your mouth uh,
4: or even to make it smaller, to drag it along with you or, <laughs> sure. you know, put it into a, a, some sort of rucksack. So let's. I mean, I think you can be pretty definitive if you can put a stake in the ground at a certain point of time and be the oldest thing.
3: Sure. I mean, so, the oldest knife-like tool, right? Um, you know, was found by the Leakeys in Olduvai Gorge uh, in Africa, and was dated. It was, you know, as a stone, a, a, a human-formed piece of sharp stone that dates back two and a half million years.
4: So two and a half million years, and when we say knife, we're exp- we're. Expanding the definition of you know the um, metal thing, which is a whole other yeah. segment and subset of technological advancements. But the first cutting object or cutting stone that was fabricated in order to do that is two and a half million years ago. Yeah, Does, is there anything else that predates that in terms of? I'm going to use I'm using air quotes that you can't see
3: sure. on the radio. <laughs>
4: Technology,
3: <laughs> um, <laughs> food tech. You know, I mean, I, I think I think it'd be hard to make a case that there's anything anything older than that, um, you know, because that really, you know, when man started making tools, what were those early tools, right? They were likely for things like cutting or, you know, to make spears and arrows and, you know.
4: Would we consider a carrying vessel to be food technology or no? Like a carrying vessel, if you were, car- you know, a bowl or some sort of sack or... You know, hide to carry water, ingredients, something mixing.
3: I guess that. I mean, I guess so. I guess that is there is something technological there. If it is something that is being that is not just being found, right? So you're not just taking a dry gourd, right? And using it as a vessel, but you're actually taking clay, say, and forming something. Um, I think I, I would I would be willing to to make the case that that is also technology.
4: Okay. I wonder if that predates a cutting, cutting stone.
3: I don't know. I would say that the cutting stone, uh, I mean, you know, at least as someone who works with knives and you know, talks a lot about knives and you know, sort of thinks about them, I, w- I would say that the knife is more important because I think you, can, you could survive by, without making those other things, um, but I think you need a knife. To survive. Yeah.
4: So we think of the knife in terms of really, uh, I mean, most of us We'll think of the knife as something that you use to cut food into smaller pieces. But I think if we go back two and a half million years ago, they were probably also using it to, much like a butcher would today, utilizing a knife to cut a giant thing that's, you know, potentially a few times bigger than yourself (laughs) down to a smaller, more manageable size, even for storage and transportation.
3: Yeah. And for harvest, too. I mean, I think we have to remember that even with foraging and things, like there still was probably a need to cut things off of trees or off, you know, to cut plants uh, as well.
4: So, one of the things that I'm just fascinated by is at what point do you think that the cutting stone ceased to be a marvel and just became what everybody had? You know, a cutting stone in every hand. You know, right, right. Before the, the precursor to the chicken in every pot.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have to imagine that at a certain point, you know, I mean, obviously there's like, you know, patient zero or whatever. <laughs> like there's the first person who realized they could knock two stones together. But that's kind of a, you know, the, the, it's impossible for us to trace that that far back. Um, as, as someone who's not, a, I mean, I'm not an archaeologist. I don't know where in the timeline these things become prevalent all over the place. But I think uh, it, it can't have taken that long right i mean as humans developed and as early man developed and spread out the fact that you do find the knife in every kitchen or in every food preparation worldwide where you don't necessarily have a fork
4: even that as a worldwide. you even have it worldwide very commonly as you know the pocket knife or the swiss army knife or yeah. the utility yeah. tool that's even outside of a cooking environment yeah. where you would just have it for you know, all those other types of cutting yeah, um, in different situations that you might need. So it's a fairly ubiquitous thing. I think one of the other points that we talked about on the timeline of evolving tech, and we all know that tech evolves, you can have a great idea, and then a better version comes along, you know, 18 months later, and you have to buy the new one. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did we did we acquire metal knives? Because metal knives are really... I mean, a cutting stone is an amazing piece of technology that people really utilized what they had. But then the metal knife is harnessing the fire yeah. with the steel.
3: and Yeah, and, and with an element that's then being turned into something else and manufactured. Um, my understanding is about 4,000 years ago, the first copper uh, knives uh, appeared and making them out of metal. Um, And then, you know, fast forward to the modern age, and most knives are made of steel. I mean, we have ceramic knives now in the last... 15, 20 years or so, um, as a sort of new material, um, that, you know, is marketed for having all these anti, antimicrobial, antibacterial, never rusts, um, properties. They can chip though. Yes, they can. They're very, they're much harder. But um, they're
4: very, um, I use, we, we have a lot of ceramic knives at home and, uh, they're easy to transport and they're actually very pleasant to work with.
3: Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, you know, and, and I think that the, but but it's still, a, it's still a knife, right? You don't think of it as a different piece of technology no. than a chef's knife that's made no. of steel.
4: And we don't think of the plastic picnic knife or the thing that you get in a to-go box to be, even though we know it's different, it's still in the same category of right. knife.
3: Right. Yeah, because you're using it to cut things into smaller pieces.
4: And, you know, the plastic knife was even significant enough to be banned on airlines. <laughs> For quite some time after 9-11, at least in the United States. You couldn't bring those plastic knives onto a plane and they didn't have them anymore when you got your in-flight meal service. Yeah,
3: But if you were my mother, you could bring your knitting needles on the plane.
4: Right. Well, that's (laughs) your mom. That's your mom. (laughs) She was a dangerous lady. Come on. (laughs) That's a different show, Harry. (laughs) Harry's mom is dangerous. Is a totally different show. Right now, we're going to have to take a quick break from this show. Tech Bytes, which is one of 35 shows live every week on the Heritage Radio Network, and we make all that great radio entirely out of the generosity and sponsorship of our members, grants, and amazing underwriters like this one. Stay with us. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. We talk about software platforms, apps, digital tech, cooking tech. Do you have a piece of tech you want us to talk about? Are you a founder of a new company and you think you would be a great CEO conversation? Get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. We are very interactive. You can find us on social media at Tech Bytes, B-I-T-E-S-H-R-N on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or you can send us an email techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org We'd love to hear from you Today we are hearing from Harry Rosenblum who is the host of Feast Your Ears which is another great heritage show He's on every Wednesday at 1pm and his show is uh, it's conversations with people about food from all different professions and places and points of view and I, I really enjoy listening to his show and I'm also a little bit envious of Harry and his show because while I love the super specificity of tech bites and really you know digging deep and sometimes getting a little geeky on the tech sometimes I come across guests that I would love to talk to and love to have on the show but they're just not techie. And Harry, because his show is about people's, you know, lives through the lens of food, you can talk to anybody.
3: I can. I mean, I I feel like I'm very lucky uh, in that regard. And it's also makes it's one of the things that I like about my show um, is that, you know, it can it could be a man on the street or it could be, you know, a famous chef.
4: Or uh, one of my favorite episodes is you have an airline pilot yes. also, yes. which uh, was great.
3: Yeah, that was that was a really that was a fun that was a fun one to do. Uh, yeah, I, my my goal. I mean, if I had like a, a dream guest for my show, mm. uh, it would be to talk to an astronaut on the space station.
4: Okay, you could probably get a chef who makes food for the astronauts.
3: Oh yeah, true.
4: I actually got to have one of my dream guests on. One of my dream guests was Nathan Mirvold, who's Modernist Cuisine. And if you are in the food slash cooking slash tech world, you will know his name and also his exhaustively excessive and really fascinating tomes on cooking and bread. And I got to have him on last summer on the release of his book, Modernist Bread, that dovetailed with the series that we did called Modernist Breadcrumbs. Yeah,
3: it's a great story and yeah. really a great series. Yeah,
4: he's fascinating, and you know he was a great conversation in that we talked quite a bit about the history of these different food technologies because his book was all about bread, but back from back in the day, and when we say back in the day, we're talking you know twenty three you know million years ago yeah. or something. <laughs> Um, The first, you know, bread baking and we're talking about, you know, bakeries in Pompeii and things like that. So the fascinating thing to me about that, I mean, aside from the obvious that it's 2,500 pages about bread is that following and studying the history of bread and on this show, the history of knives, you're really following the history of civilization. Yep. In many ways, For and sure. I think one of the one of the most interesting things that Harry and I talked about, we talked, we started talking a little bit about the Japanese knife um, industry. And if you are a chef or a cooking aficionado, you will know that Japanese knives are the holy grail, super it bag superstar uh, of all knives. They are the Rolls Royce, best in class things to have. And part of the reason why is that they're made by hand in the tradition of the samurai swords.
3: Yeah, they are. So, I mean, the the real, the Japanese knife industry um, really was a blade industry uh, dating back all the way to, you know, the 10th century or so, even a little bit before that when the bladesmithing started in Japan and continued really as an industry to make swords until the middle of the 19th century. When is, they
4: didn't need swords quite so much.
3: Well, and, and the emperor of Japan outlawed the samurai. So essentially it also became the makers had no market. They didn't have anybody to buy their blades.
4: Because Ronin.
3: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and So, so number... they had
4: to stop making swords
3: they and stopped... do something
4: else. Yeah, and, and so they just made smaller swords. Yeah,
3: and which they the were kitchen. already making. I mean, they were already making those, but they really focused their business. So um, I work with a company called Kikuichi Cutlery, uh, who are the oldest knife company in the world. The company traces its heritage back to 1267 when the current owner's family ancestor was a sword maker for the emperor of japan
4: that's amazing so i know we're on radio and you can't see them but if you look at the and the website for the knife company that he's talking about kikuichi yep. is kikuchi.com. K I K U C H I.
3: k-i-k-u-i-c-h-i oh. Dot com. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, if, if you can go to dot com. We'll lead you to the Japanese site, um, which does have some English translation. And if you go to dot net, that's sort of the American side of the company's site.
4: So one of the things that is so beautiful about the Japanese knives, and now many other knife makers use the same practice slash technology, is it's damask steel. So explain to us what that is, because it's part of what makes them so good, but also visually, what makes them so beautiful.
3: Yeah, so when, when you're using, when you have Damascus steel, you have these layers of steel. And originally, that was done in the making of swords by folding the piece of steel. So you're heating it in a forge, and you're folding it over, and you're making a layer, and you're hammering that out like thinner. Like puff pastry or croissant. Totally, absolutely. It's a, a very when similar you're like process. When you like, laminating dough. Yep, yep, just hotter and a little harder. Uh, and you don't need a hammer if you're making croissant. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, and, and what that yields by doing that is it yields strength in the steel. Um, historically, you know, steel is an alloy of iron, which is a very soft uh, element. And then with the addition of carbon and other things, you get different kinds of steel ultimately yielding in the 20th century the invention uh, creation of lots of stainless steel because we were afraid of rust and patina on our on our steel um, or on our knives and on other and things. And when you
4: say we, you mean Americans?
3: Um or to a certain extent, I mean, yes. I mean, stainless steel had other uses. People. I mean, it, stainless steel doesn't uh, doesn't corrode, so it was being used in the shipping industry and being used in aerospace and things like that. It, but it wasn't really until the 1970s and 80s that it, that the cost of that alloys um, came down enough that it made sense to make things like a kitchen knife that a, that a regular consumer would buy. Um, out of those metals, but historically with that carbon steel, it had to be heated and folded and heated and folded, and then would be heat treated to sort of maintain that hard edge. And what that does yield is this beautiful patterning on the knife, um, because of the multiple layers.
4: It looks like waves or lace sometimes, yeah. or, a, it also looks a little bit like a topographical map. Sure. The way it sort of has the, yeah. you know, it's following itself. Yep. One of the other unique characteristics about the Japanese knives are they're only on one side.
3: Correct. Yeah. So traditionally, they have a single bevel. Um, so the way I often describe that to people is that in the modern day, they're more like a razor blade. Um, whereas a, a you know a Western style chef's knife is more like if you look at the profile, it's like a V. Um, and so you're sharpened evenly on on both sides. And traditionally, uh, Japanese blades, swords were sharpened on both sides, but kitchen knives were sharpened or other you know industrial style knives were only sharpened on that on on one side and had a single bevel. Um, and that has to do with uh, the way the knives are used, and it's. Un- you know, I'm not sure whether the, the way the knife is held and used to cut came from the form or vice versa.
4: So I have a limited knowledge about the Japanese knife thing. Um, my husband's a chef and has a very nice collection of Japanese knives and has been collecting them for quite some time. <laughs> Um, has things that he's just bought in shops in Japan and also things that have been custom-made. Yep. My understanding is that the length of the blade has to do with the cut that it makes because of the... So back to the Western knife where the the blade is like a V-shape, you can kind of go chop up and down, like that movement that we all know when you're chopping onions or something like that, or you would maybe, um, you know, maybe make one cut and pull it through or do all different kinds, very versatile usage in terms of the types of chopping and motions that you're going to make. With the Japanese knife, because it's only bladed on one side, you're not going to do that sort of up and down chopping motion. You're going to put the blade onto the item to cut, and then you're going to pull the blade through to the end of the blade. So if you... Look at the knives that are made for filleting fish. They are very long and very thin because you would start the cut at the base of the blade and then pull the blade all the way through along the length of the fish, give you a long cut. If you look at the blade, the knives that are made for cutting bone or vegetables, they're... Te- Typically, very short
3: by comparison. By
4: comparison, because you're gonna make one quick, hard, short chop. Yeah. mean
3: the other big difference I think is that you know you mentioned the Western blade where we're used to chopping up and down, and we're sort of all taught like the claw grip with the opposite hand. You go, your fingers are never near the sharp edge of the blade. Like that's the first thing you're taught, right? When you're taught knife skills in the West, if you go and and the best place for sort of uh, you know anyone to see this is if you go to a sushi restaurant and you watch the chef slicing pieces of fish to make sushi, they are always putting their hand on the fish, their fingers, and they're in fact slicing towards the hand. Yes. And that is something that we never ever do here at all, but part of that has to do with, A, the control and their technique and also the sharpness of the blade. But if you think about it, if you're holding a knife in your right hand that is essentially flat on the on the part on the on the side of the blade that's facing up and you are cutting towards your hand and that bevel basically that bevel is going to lead that blade towards the board it's not going to lead it into the middle of your fingers and so that's another you know it, it's a different technique that you use for using that blade
4: yeah it's a very very different um cutting style and the way you hold the knives yep. um i've also heard many uh chefs and people who use japanese knives say that if you're using them properly um, because the the blades themselves are are built to, you know, guide the blades through the cook, you know through the through the product in a specific way. It requires a lot less force and strength, and that holding them is is much more uh, delicate and relaxed and you just sort of pull the blade through the item that you're cutting. And the blade kind of does a lot of the work for you. Whereas with many of the Western knives, it's a, uh, you know, when I go back to that kind of up and down chopping yeah. motion, that's all like arm and shoulder. Yeah. Um, and there's, if you're, you know, using a knife and you're on your feet, cutting food, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours a day, um, the Japanese knives are purportedly um, much more relaxing and easier and kind of better to use if you're using them in the proper way.
3: Yeah. And I, th- I think that that's true. And I think that there's a certain aspect of that that has to also do with sharpness. So and, and it gets back to the knife being this tool. And the whole point of a tool, right, is to make the work easier for us as humans. Right. And so if you're thinking about a knife as, a, as an important tool, it's supposed to make cutting the food easier, not harder. And so when you, you know, the when you start to realize that, oh, it's really taking me a lot of force to get through that carrot, well, that means more than likely your knife is dull.
4: So we are still very much involved in the technology of fabrication of the knives mm-hmm. in terms of which one you pick, which one you use, how yep. it's made, but then also you have to engage a little bit in the technology actually yourself in terms of sharpening and maintenance.
3: Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, so... So coming sort of forward into the technology of the of the steel knife and of the metal blade the as i mentioned you know all knives were made of a carbon steel a much simpler kind of steel um, until you know about 30 years ago and even in the last 10 years there've been great inv- advancements in the alloys and in the manufacturing of steel so now you have what's called powdered steel where there are very low impurities in the the steel where you can make a a sheet of steel for cutting out knife blades where the the steel itself is incredibly uniform. It's uniform of thickness, it's uniform of grain, it's uniform of texture. Um, And then you have alloys that allow for lots of different aspects of those blades. And as you change those around, you get different properties in your blade. Some of them make the blade wear better some of them make them stain resistant and rust resistant chromium for instance Um, some of them make them take a a finer edge so vanadium will help your blade take a finer grain have a have a finer texture to the steel which will take uh, a finer edge which people equate with being sharper
4: so we have the original uh tech at two and a half million years ago and today we have Subsets of the evolution of that technology yep. into different things. Do you think people still consider the knife a piece of technology? We, I, we, ta- we were talking just before the show about how the knife is something that probably is in use around the world, regardless of you know culture, type of eating, cuisine, whether it's being used as a as a tool for life or as a tool for cooking. They're almost everywhere.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, to get back to your question about when does something go from being sort of t- considered technology to being just a piece of you know a piece of life or a, or an everyday object, um, you know, I think that the knife is not considered a piece of technology by people. I think that people who are interested in knives and are following knife making and following knife, you know, blade technology do think of there are things that have happened. Metal alloy of the month club. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) in the metallurgy or in the manufacturing style, um, you know, what, what it comes to mind for me is that I wonder, you know, as, as someone, I mean, as we sit here in the studio, we both grew up before everyone had a camera in their pocket on their phone. Yep. Um, But I look at my children and I think that, you know, or even looking at other people, I mean, even myself, right? I don't think of that now. If I pull out my phone to use it and the camera was the other thing I was going to say I use all the time in my on my phone, it's not really an app, I guess it is an app, but you know, to take pictures of documents that I need to send people or password, you know, a Wi-Fi password in a cafe, if I'm going to go sit down, I don't remember it, I take a picture of it.
4: Or things you want to remember. Oh, yeah. I want to read that book yeah. or that's a great painting yep. or there's the restaurant or...
3: Yeah, or I'm going to post that on Instagram. Whatever it is, the thinking, you know, I definitely view my phone i mean we i call it a phone but it does so much more i i you know my uh you know mini computer mini you know my my brother calls it the tiny internet uh you know the my my pocket computer i view that as a piece of technology but i don't view the camera piece of it as much as a piece of technology whereas you know when i was a kid i had a you know i had a a nikon you know camera that you know was a real like you know slr camera and then i had a you know i had a a cheaper camera and so those I could compare as different pieces of technology that used Polaroid had a Polaroid sure so those to me felt like technology but this doesn't
4: it's very interesting I think also about what things will become not technology going forward and you know even things elementally one of the things we were talking about are ingredients or you know things that are cooking technology like cornstarch for example was initially an industrial product that was used for starching laundry. It was yeah. a laundry starch. And it made its way into kitchens and was this like crazy powder. And now it's so ubiquitous that cornstarch, it's an ingredient like a banana.
3: Right. And it just appears in a list and you're just expected to have it in your, in right. your cabinet. Yeah. right? Or like baking powder. I mean, I think of, you know, I have a cookbook at home from Rizon, which was a very early baking powder. But, you know, baking powder was not something that was ubiquitous in the, you know, I mean, the book I think is from the, you know, teens, maybe the 1920s. And that wasn't ubiquitous, but now it is. Now, you know, if you're going to make anything at home, you you know, that should be in your spice drawer, right?
4: Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. At what point does something cease to be technology and just become a part of everyday life? And how do we define what technology is? I mean, it maybe depends on your experience and, and your frame of reference, You know, maybe people who don't have iPhones or smartphones or the, you know, pocket internet might see it, you know, ten years from now and say, Wow, that's an amazing piece of technology whereas for your kids perhaps they would say, Oh yeah, it's just the thing.
3: Yeah, I mean we talked about you know, we talked about other kitchen technologies, right? And the fact that the refrigerator, at least in this country or the first world, whatever you want to call it, you know, the refrigerator is something that's accepted, right? If you would never move into an apartment and if not it wasn't, and and not have a refrigerator, mm-hmm. right? In the same way that you wouldn't move in and not have running water. Right. But those things are not necessarily available in other places in the world. Um, and yet, you know, there are places without running water and without electricity in every home where they do have smartphones. The internet. <laughs> yeah, the they do have internet. the internet in their pocket.
4: Amazing. And then also even just in our lifetime, the microwave, the magic oven. Yeah. I mean, that was something that, you know, came into being and became, uh, you know, average home item. Well,
3: and and the people were scared of.
4: Yes. I mean. Still are a little bit.
3: And, you know, I mean, I remember going to a restaurant. Don't put metal in it. Except that someone recently told me that there was a, at the houseware show in Chicago a few weeks ago, there was a metal, uh, like grilled cheese press that has some kind of coating on it and you put it in the microwave.
4: Oh my gosh.
3: And I mean, I said, what do you mean? I thought you weren't supposed to put metal in the microwave. There is
4: that sort of metallic coating. That's the plastic sleeve box that you put like a hot pocket into and then it makes the hot pocket crispy.
3: Hmm. Which no? I've
4: seen on TV, yeah. not at home. Just <laughs> to be clear, for the record, we do not have a microwave at home. I don't either. There are no hot pockets.
3: We have a we have a tiny, like three quarter quart um, Le Creuset saucepan that we call the microwave.
4: Oh, okay. Because
3: I find that if you're reheating leftovers, a little bit of water in that pan on the stove will reheat the leftovers just as fast as yes. a microwave.
4: We make toast in a sauté pan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is all the time that we have for the show today. Um, before we say goodbye, I want to call out some real-life events that you can connect with the HRN crew and connect with Tech Bytes. We have a Heritage Radio Network member happy hour coming up next week. Are you a member of Heritage Radio? If you're not, it's time to get on it. It will take place on Tuesday, April 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Harbor Bar, which is inside the Whole Foods Market at Bryant Park, and our very own DJ Cherish the Love, Cynthia Malloran, who hosts Wedding Cake, will be spinning tunes, and HRN members will get two tokens, both good for a free beer. Look for the HRN table when you get to the Harbor Bar to check in and get your beer tokens. And if you're not a member but want to become a member, I think they can help you out
3: on the spot. And as I bet well. if you sign up on the spot, you get two beers. So
4: you you definitely do, which is better than which is better than the t-shirt. Almost. The other real life event that we are getting ready for is we are doing a live pitch show on Tech Bytes on April nineteenth. If you listened to episode 123 of Tech Bytes, which was about VC funding in the food tech space, we had Charlie O'Donnell, who's the founder of Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, which is Brooklyn's only venture capital group. He is going to be coming back on the show on Thursday. April 19th, and we will have two companies who will have the opportunity to pitch him live on the show.
3: That is really cool.
4: This is real. This is like Tech by Shark Tank kind of thing (laughs) happening. I'm very excited about it. It's the first time we're going to do something like this. Um, It should be great. So how can you occupy one of those two seats? Well, you have to be New York City based. You have to be available to be in studio on the 19th for the show live at 11 and you also have to be pre $750,000 funding stage and send a pitch deck, send your pitch deck, tell us why you have a great product and a great company. Tell us why your team is particularly adept and superstars at this project and where you are in your company's life and your funding. Again, you can email us techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. So, Lots of great things, lots of great ways to really connect in the real world with Heritage Radio, because at the end of the day, that's really what technology is good for, mostly. Technology is good for finding the really delicious things in real life. I want to thank Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears, for coming on the show. If you want to follow him, he is at the thefoodballer on Instagram. He is also at the Brooklyn Kitchen, which you may have heard of. It's a little cooking shop event education space in Brooklyn that has been a longtime supporter of Heritage Radio and a longtime fixture in the Brooklyn culinary world. They are at the B-K-L-Y-N Kitchen. And if you want to find out more about the supersonic Japanese knives, they are at K-I-K-I-U-C-H-I dot cutlery on social media. Or K-I-K-I... K-I-K-U-I-C-H-I dot com. That's all the time we have. I'm Jennifer Leizzi, host and producer of Tech TechBytes Tech is engineered today by Vitor Hirsch. Our theme song is Nomad, a CPU track by DJ Uptown Nico. We broadcast live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time from the Heritage Radio Network studio... Inside Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. Come back and see us next week.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.